Hi friends, I'm Blue Mitchell, photographer, publisher, and now podcaster. You're listening to The Diffusion Tapes, a podcast where I chat with photographers, curators, and writers working in the field of fine art photography. More specifically, these tapes are conversations with people I've befriended on my journey as an artist and publisher. So now I get to learn a little more about these folks that I admire and respect, and I'm inviting you into our conversation. Welcome to The Diffusion Tapes. Welcome to tape number five with Ray Bidigan. So Ray is a fine art photographer, educator, mentor, and all-around photo guru. Ray currently resides here in Portland, Oregon. Beyond doing his own work, he teaches workshops and a variety of techniques and printing processes, including platinum printing, photogravure, and large format photography. Ray is also on the photo council at the Portland Art Museum, and he organizes some local photo gatherings through Lyceum Portland. I've known Ray for many years now, and I guess it was about 10 years ago he sought me out at a Blue Moon Camera gallery opening and introduced himself. Afterward, I would learn what an amazingly talented photographer he was, and it's now a privilege to call him a friend. Over the years, Ray has grown to become one of my favorite photographers. His passion, influence, and giving to our photo community here in Portland has been incomparable throughout the years, and he's really an inspiration for everyone. I've had many great conversations with Ray, so it's a pleasure to sit down with him formally, pour bourbon, and record a session. Let's learn a little more about Ray, his history, and his thoughts on photography. So, uh, I'm here with Ray Bidigan. I'm at his house. Thanks for having me over, Ray. Thanks for coming over, Blue. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's nice to come over and see you. I, went, I took a quick tour of the studio downstairs before we set up. The basement. Yeah. I like seeing Ray and his element down there. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's been 25 years down there. Wow. It's all that magic that goes out into the world. A lot of it happens down there. All of it. All of it starts down there. And it's always been nice for me to be able to work from home because I like the idea of being able to do it anytime. Right. And so when my kids were small, I could go downstairs and they would be upstairs and I could still work and keep an eye on them and know what they were doing. And so since I was a stay-at-home dad, having a studio in the basement uh, turned out to be the ticket for me. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was going to talk about some of the things you and I have in common, and that's one of them. Right there. <laughs> All right, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. When we were looked for houses, before I had kids, I always was like, well, you need to have a basement so my studio can be on site. You know, I didn't think about it. But with the kid thing, it's been really nice because I can do all my work and still be close. Sure. Which is hey, nice. And I think it is more conducive to making work. At least it is for me. Because I'm already I'm sort of paying for the house. So it's not an additional expense. And it just feels like uh, home and a place for me to make my work. Well, and access is nice. You know, being able to, I don't have to go across town or something. You just go downstairs. Needling have to be dressed. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Convenient art making. <laughs> well, some of the other things I thought we had in common was the two girls. You have two, two girls and now I do as well. That's right. Mine are, uh, I have one daughter who's going to be finishing college uh, this year. And another daughter that's finishing high school. So I think I'm a little older than you. So my kids No, I thought are, we were about the same age. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so it's exciting. And it's been a really important part of my life to 
be the stay-at-home dad and raise these girls up, and it's fun to watch them fledge out into the world now. Yeah. Although it's going to be a change now for me in the sense of time and energy for my photography. So that's something mm. I'm looking forward to. Sure, yeah. Do they appreciate your photography? Um, well, it's, it's interesting. As my daughter in college moved out and got her own apartment to live in, she asked me specifically for two or three different prints that mm. she could put up in her house. Nice. And then this year she lives in a house with four other uh, roommates that are all friends from the Ultimate Frisbee team. And she asked me to come up there and make a, a portrait of all of them in a big print so they could put up in their house. Nice. So from that standpoint, I think that they do appreciate it. They're certainly supportive. Right, yeah. And uh, they don't really have to collect it because I give it to them, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly they've done their share of modeling for it, especially m and mm-hmm. She's modeled for a lot of photographs over the years. Right. Not really in the same way. I didn't really incorporate their growing up into my work. I used them more as actual models and individuals than I did just right. recording their childhood. Sure. Did they ever get involved with the studio stuff with you? Not so much. Uh, Abigail took some uh, photography in high school, and she used to print downstairs, which was fun. Oh, okay. They were too small. When I was doing uh, studio photography and when I was a wedding photographer, they were too small to be my assistant or to help in those kind of things. Right, right. I always thought it'd be kind of fun if they were a little older and they could have been that, been that person. <laughs> Plus you got free labor. Because I had free, well, <laughs> I don't know, in those days I kind of did anyway because there were people who wanted to learn the business of wedding photography. Oh, right. And so they would come and be my assistant. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, I just paid them a small amount. Nice. And they would learn. And they learned. Yeah. And so in fact, they went on to do it. And there's a couple of yeah. local photographers that I taught in that way. It's like the old-fashioned apprentice, you know, like taking an apprenticeship with someone. Yeah, that's the way you do it. I think it's a good thing. You're known, Ray, as being more of, I would say, an emotive photographer. But, uh, you know, so your work is, you know, based on an emotional impact for you and for the viewer. You call a lot of the work you do is um, beautiful. So you're creating images that are beautiful. What was the title of your show that had beauty in it? Finding Beauty. Finding Beauty. That's the word I'm trying to come up with. I like that idea of just creating work that makes people feel good. Calm is what I'm after. Calm, yeah. I want to soothe them with my mm-hmm. work. Kind of give them something to look at and just you know, take a deep breath and feel good for a little while. Yeah, we all need that. I think we do. I think that's why you're successful, right? For, you know, People do that with their work when they see it. Well, thanks. You know, I think that... Um, You've got to find something to hang on to to keep you making the work. For me, part of that is getting it out and having people take it home and get something out of it. And if they're taking it home and that's what they're getting, then at the end of the day, I can feel good about that. All right, exactly. So let's let's backtrack. I want to go back and uh, see where all this came from. Okay. <laughs> so you grew up in Tucson, Arizona, right? I did. Correct? I was yeah. born and raised there. Okay. How long were you there? I left uh, to go to college when I was 18 years old. Okay. So I was the whole time in one house, three-bedroom, two-bath ranch house. Same house. Same house, nice. one house. And you know, Tucson is the, is the desert, and mm-hmm. the desert's a different place than it is here in the Pacific Northwest where I live now. And one of the things I always thought was interesting about the desert is there's, there's bugs and things that can kill you. I mean, there's snakes and bugs and spiders and, and the desert itself. Like scorpions. Sort of, sure. Yeah. And those, you know, and the, the desert is sort of forbearing in that way. It's, mm-hmm. 
and so it feels a little different than it does. It feels very lush and comfortable up here somehow. <laughs> it's kind of felt like the West, I guess, in some ways, or like the West is depicted in movies. Hmm. But I liked it. It was an easy place to be. Right. What did your parents do? Uh, my mother was a nurse when I before I was born and for a bit of the time uh, after I was born, and then she stopped doing that in order to raise my sister and I. Hmm stay home with us. She was the stay-at-home parent. And my father sold real estate uh, the whole time. And, you know, there was something really nice about, you know, I said I lived in one house, and all that was a lot of stability for me. Sure, yeah. Which, you know, I tried to provide for my kids, too, because hmm. I think that's something that makes kids feel grounded and uh, kind of makes it easy for them to go on. You have a place to call home, too. You know, like, my parents move around a lot, and so, like, I don't have this identity with a place so much you know have i was born in montana and i lived in montana a lot so identify the whole state is where i'm from <laughs> but you know there's not a specific house or, sure. or a specific town even so i mean that comes across that my my wife was born and raised here in portland where i live now hmm. and so we can be out places and she'll run into people she went to kindergarten with oh, as well <laughs> and so i do sort of miss the idea that i don't live where i grew up hmm. There's a part of me that sort of wishes I did. And I would probably have made more effort to do that if I had, hadn't had liked it up here so well. Sure. You know, Portland, when I came to Portland, it's been about almost 30 years now. When I came, I just always felt like I'd lived here. It was hmm. super comfortable. Right. Um, at the time, I was making retail portraits, and my photography was better received here than it had been in any place else I'd lived. Hmm. It was kind of interesting in that way. Um, prior to that time, uh, I couldn't sell a black and white portrait to save my life. And uh -uh. here, that's all I did. So hmm. it, was, it was nice. Oh, that's interesting. The cultural difference. Maybe it was just timing. I don't know. But it hmm. was a, just a different sort of environment. And there was certainly a lot of interest in collecting and having photography. So that was nice. Gotcha. Let's talk about photography then. Okay. Um, you, you started photography in high school? Right. So um, I started photography on my own initially uh, in junior high school, just like had a little uh, darkroom set from Sears in my bedroom closet. Ah, nice. And I used uh, the book that came with it and the Time Life books to teach myself how to develop film and make prints. And then I took photography in high school and learned how to do it a little better. Uh, and then while I was still in high school, when I was 16, I got hired by a local studio that did wedding photography and so i did that for the last couple of years of high school hmm, interesting the whole idea of the home kit brings up a whole nother topic that <laughs> we were going to talk about and that's the kind of kid you were so you must have been into science and stuff like that if you wanted to do chemistry or were you just doing it for the making the image it seems to me if you wanted to take photos you would just take photos and take them to a lab and get them developed and then get prints back but you went this whole other level Right, so explain that whole interest. Sure, I mean, you would just take him to the drugstore, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of a, I was, I was not exactly a nerdy kid, but I was definitely a kind of a loner. Hmm. And I loved everything that was mechanical. And I had one of those chemistry sets that they don't let kids have anymore, where it opened kind of like a book fold thing, and there oh, was right. 50 bottles of stuff that kids <laughs> probably shouldn't have. And it came in again with a book that you could do these small experiments with. And I just hmm. loved doing all that kind of stuff, things with my hands particularly, sure. uh, woodworking or making models or, you know, all those kind of things were really interesting. And, and that's how I spent my time as a kid. 
And so photography was just sort of perfect in that way because it was a combination of two things. You know, it was this art-making thing, and I can't say that that was super important to me at the time, but certainly that chemical process part of it I loved. And it was important. Uh, This actually brings me to one of the things we don't have in common. Okay. And that's that tech savviness that Uh I know about you because I've taken workshops with you and stuff in the past. But what's interesting about your... You're like a nonchalant tech guy. Like, you know so much of the technical piece of making photography, but you're so nonchalant about it that it... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I work at it, but I'm not uptight about it. Right, exactly. I'll I'll agree with you on that. I've known people in the past that are very technical, but then they have a really hard time just thinking creatively, right? So you have a nice marriage of those two things where you can deal with the technical piece and then make pretty things at the same time, right? Well, so fine. mixing the craft and the tech is, is pretty... I mean, that's, that's impressive, I think. Well, it's kind of... I mean, the goal for me was... I mean, the last thing I want is for me to have the pictures not come out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I want to be able to have that piece be pretty easy to do. Mm-hmm. And I dig it. I like doing it. And right. it's part of... I mean, it's part of what I like about my photography is certainly I want them to look a certain way. Sure. And, and I think they, they do, and I like that. And it's made it an easy next step for me to start teaching. Hmm, That's sure. the, the workshop chain sort of came as a natural extension of liking the process and being good at it. Right, right. Yeah. So let's back up again. Um, when you got that job at 16, yeah. did that lead you to end up going to Brooks? It did. So I did that for a couple of years, and I thought... Uh, my parents were kind enough to offer me a college education hmm. and without a whole lot of restrictions they allowed me to choose where I wanted to go um, and so I came home one day and told them I wanted to go to to photography school and it hmm. wasn't really art school it was kind of like photography art school mm-hmm. combined right, right very technical setting for sure right right um, well you're learning more commercial application right we learned to be commercial photographers yeah, yeah. yeah. we didn't learn to be uh, art photographers at right all. yeah but learning that technical part i mean that's to me that's a lot of the hard part is the technical when i first got into it you know i was like leaning more to being the artist mm-hmm. so I, I struggled more with the technical pieces of photography when i was learning and you know i figured them out but i've always been real organic with that stuff like i'm not the best at keeping notes on how i did stuff so like you know there's a lot of pain and agony in the dark room because I wasn't good at keeping notes or, you know, so I was always learning, like, you really got to keep notes. And so I had to train myself to think differently, you know, in photography. If I wanted to make a good print, as you said, you know, you want the images to come out. Yeah, you got to have... Why waste all that time if the results are crappy? I remember after finishing uh, Brooks, I enrolled in a photography class at the University of Arizona back in Tucson where I was living. Hmm. And it was a... It was in the art department, so it was art school. And I remember really feeling like there was a giant chasm between what they were teaching in art school and what they were what I'd been learning at Brooks. Oh, right. And I felt like I really felt like it was an unfair thing, probably for all of us, mm-hmm. but particularly for the art school students who were struggling with really great conceptual ideas, but they just couldn't even get it on. They couldn't get it on the paper. Right, right. And so I, f- I felt like, and I hadn't really had any thoughts about being a teacher in those days, but I really felt like the answer was someplace in between. Right, you need to bridge the gap somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as an educator, sense. I try to be 
you know, student success is my goal. Right. And I think that was part of that experience of watching those kids having trouble then. I can see that. Yeah. And, you know, that Brooks was a great place to learn to be a commercial photographer, and it was a career I enjoyed for a number of years, you know, chasing kids around my studio and women around <laughs> on their wedding day. And <laughs> all that stuff was fun, and I liked it. And, uh, and it was interesting because I was thinking about this as I knew you were coming over. Mm-hmm. In those days, I didn't think about sort of the fine art photographers are out there. My heroes were all the commercial photographers. Oh, right. But the ones that I was mostly interested in were the ones, the rare ones, that were able to have commercial careers that crossed over into fine art. Sure, right. The Irving Penn mm-hmm. and the Avedons right, and right. the Helmut Newtons. Those were the heroes I was looking up to. Um, well, they were living in both worlds, really. They were. Yeah. And I kind of had this fantasy that I could do the same thing. And mm-hmm. it, it's a very difficult leap. But as I was doing my commercial photography, I always had my eye towards still having it be my own work. I was plenty happy to do the work on assignment for them, but I was trying to do it with a bit of my own feel. And with always some part of me thinking, oh, one day I'll make a platinum print of that. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So did you ever do, like, any editorial work? No. No. So mostly just commercial studio. Sure. I mean, I would do a little bit of location I don't know how to describe it, kind of in a report kind of things, but not very often. Hmm. Gotcha. Certainly no newspaper or anything like that. Right, right. Or magazine spreads. No. Hmm. I mean, I would do individual pictures for magazines now and then, hmm. portraits mostly. I was I was primarily a portrait photographer. Yeah. And I liked it. It was a good thing. And I think it, it still sort of hit that button of mine in the sense that I know there's going to be portraits I made in attics all across the country. Right. No one will know it was me. <laughs> you know, I always wonder that about the Weston portraits. He made tons and tons of portraits that were unsigned. Oh. And people would have them and never even know. Never know Mm-mm. that they had it. Weston. Yeah. <laughs> Not that that's going to happen with me, but I do think that there's lots of portraits I made out there that are important heirlooms in people's lives, and I feel good about that. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of it, this is totally random, but I had a friend of mine do a painting of me because I thought it'd be cool to have like a painting. So I gave it to my wife. <laughs> but it's, did you ever see that Seinfeld episode where Kramer got a portrait made of himself? No. Oh, they called it the Kramer. So now we call this portrait, which is not up in our house, we call it the, the Kramer because nobody likes it. <laughs> do you I like just, it? Ah, I like that there's a, a painting of me, but I, it's, yeah, it's kind of eerie looking. Is it realistic or? Yeah. I mean, it's meant to, it's not super abstract. It's not yes. Francis Bacon or something. No, no. I just think that I shouldn't have done it. Like, I think it, I just can't handle a painting of myself. Yeah. It seems odd. <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's one of the, that's an irony of being a portrait photographer is that grownups don't have it done. Mm. That's, I, that's one of the things I did get tired of is always taking pictures of kids. Oh, right. You know, I mean, kids are fun, but. Yeah, there's only so many things you can do. <laughs> there's only so many ways to trick them into looking at the camera. I can't get my own kids to look at the camera. So. No, without like crossing your eyes or something. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about you ended up switching over to fine art, essentially. Did you find new heroes in that world that inspired you? I think I'd already found them, hmm. meaning somewhere along the way I started looking at that work more than I did fashion magazines and all that stuff. That's where I'd been seeing some of the Irving Penn and Avedon and those mm-hmm. guys. And so the, the fine art photography really became an interest of mine along the way. And then as far as me doing it myself, that was really 
sort of a combination of a handful of things that were time-related. Turned 40, I had small kids at home, the digital revolution was coming. <laughs> um, you know, and as a small studio photographer, the onset of digital photography was pretty daunting. Mm, sure. I don't know if you remember, but I mean, the, the cameras initially were tons of money. And no one knew how they worked. Right. Prints were pretty sketchy. Right, right. And I just didn't want to do all that. And it was becoming really clear, especially as a wedding photographer, that that's what you're going to have to do. That's where it was going. That's what you're going to have to do. And so all those things sort of conspired to me deciding to make this leap. Hmm. And it was not a hard thing to do. I mean, it was hard to make photographs without assignments. Sure. That was the hardest adjustment for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to self-assign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Self-assign and sort of the concept, everything had to be mine. And that was a little hard at first because prior to that, it had always been arranged for me. So, uh, and that, so that all came right around 20, 22, 23 years ago, maybe something like that. Nice. Not quite that far, I guess. Jesus, how old am I? Okay. <laughs> That's a big year for me, age-wise. This yeah, is a big year? I'm turning 60 this year. Oh, yeah. For God's sake. Is there going to be a big party? I think there should be. No, there should be. When's your birthday? That's not till September 29th. I always think it's August for some reason. Yeah. Do you know Ruth Bernhardt? I know of her. I yeah. know her work. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I was wondering if you had any, if she influenced your style at all. The only reason I said is because I was looking at her work recently and I was like, this looks like Ray. And it's the use of the figure with, and the lighting that really drew me in and to make that comparison. With figure work in the platinum and the tones of the platinum has this real, you know, it has that vintage look to it, but it, what I like to call it is timeless, which is why I think your images work so well and are so accessible is because they feel timeless. You know, you, it's hard to tell when they were shot, right? Because you, there's nothing that dates them necessarily in the image. That's often my goal Yeah. with between who's in them and how I've made them. But I mean, certainly that is a nice reference to hear. Uh, I don't know how much I looked at her work. You know, I do, I know it, and I certainly looked at it. Like everyone, I pretty much, you know, used inspiration from all those people that I was looking at at the beginning. Photographing the nude is a is a pretty double-edged sword. It can be a little tough, mm-hmm. especially for a male photographer. I was trying to be really careful that I wasn't having this male gaze that I find not so preferable. Sure. Inside. Well, you're known, you're known in our circle of friends as just another girl. So Yeah, I'm down <laughs> with that. I'm in touch with that feeling. And I think that, uh, I think that, that comes through in my work quite mm-hmm. a bit. Sure. I don't know how to talk about that exactly, but I, I know a lot about what I don't want my pictures to be like. Mm-hmm. And I do know that I want them all uh, to have that good, calm feeling. And so sure. that's, that's kind of how I went. The vintage thing, I'm not so sure that I was tied up on them being vintage, but I certainly don't mind that as the end result. Hmm. The brown part, I feel I like that. I like old photographs. I try not to stylize them too much to look like they're set in a different time frame. Right. right. Uh, I have done that a bit. I have one model that I work with who is particularly skilled at stylizing things from the 40s. Mm-hmm. Is that and, Devin? That's Devin. Yeah. And it certainly it doesn't hurt. The photographs mm-hmm. are beautiful and wonderful. Uh, but a lot of that styling is her. All right. that styling It's about is her. the model, too. Sure. Yeah. One of the things I was going to bring up is that 
I can tell from your imagery and maybe because I know you, but I feel like there's collaboration going on between you and your models too, where they bring this, they're not bringing an identity, but they're bringing kind of an atmosphere with them. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that kind of collaboration with the model. I think it's key, um, honestly. And I think that most of the people I work with, I know pretty well. And even lately, I've been working more and more with friends and friends of friends to come and be in my photographs because it does feel like more of a collaboration. And they want to be a part of what I'm doing. And so for me, that means the energy that's at the table is is really grand. Mm. I like it. Mm. And it feels good. And I want them to be empowered by the process. It's still my picture, and it's still my thing. But they're a part of it. Sure. And uh, as it goes out and around, I think that feels good to them, to the people that are in it. I even did a little, something I haven't done in a long time. Uh, I made a few self-portraits this last year. Mm-hmm. I've started a little project called As We Get Older that revolves around me and some of my friends and and my mother, all these people that are around me that are getting older. Sure. As you know, I have this sale on my birthday, and this year I end up selling four of these pictures I'd made of myself. Mm. And I was stunned. <laughs> like, who's going to buy a picture of me, right? Mm. But I think it was, like a lot of my work, I think it was about me and it wasn't. It was me just being part of this concept. Sure. Which actually feels really good to me. Yeah. So tell me, do you know who who purchased them? Do you, Are they people that know you? One was. One was. But the other ones I the don't. The other ones you don't actually know. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I yeah. know of them. They've bought my work before. Sure. But I've never met them. Right. And they're not like, not like my pals. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the things that I think that comes up in conversations with you is how hard it is to sell a portrait that's really specifically of a certain person, right? So then there's a line that you walk that, you know, involved with the model collaboration thing where they do bring a little bit of their energy, but really ultimately it's definitely Ray Biggin photograph, right? So you've been able to kind of like make the figure, even if there's a, you know, full face shot, it's not necessarily about that person. It's more about just being human, Right. Sure. <laughs> right, being real. Yeah, right. Being and really sort of present that moment. No, that feels good, and that's kind of part of what I dig. There's no doubt about it. I guess I don't have that much interest in selling portraits of people that you know are just straight, super identified. More and more, I am trying to make them be more conceptual. Hmm. But my goal is still to have them have that thing that you referred to, and I know this about a lot of other photographers too, is like, I can scroll along on Instagram and I'll see a picture and I don't need to see the name Hmm, because I know who's made it. Sure, yeah. And I want that feeling to continue with me. You know, I feel like the thing that's in common with all of my pictures is they look like pictures that I made. As I change things up and as I maybe make things more conceptual and I've lately started making these diptychs, as I do all those things to sort of stay interested and change up my work, it's not changed so much that it's no longer me. Right. So how are you dealing with this new work that's dealing with the... Everyone's getting older? What is it? As we get older. How are you dealing with the identity of the person versus just, you know, this stand-in for the concept? Um, mostly just by averting their faces or having it be so clearly about something else. And mm. I'll tell you how it came about. I found that my shoulders were hurting all the time. 
kind of giving me this pain. So I go to the doctor and he says, oh, I'll go see this orthopedic doctor. So I go see this orthopedic doctor and this woman gives me this exam and she says, well, you have arthritis. Yeah. And, I, and, she, and I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> she says, as we get older. And I thought, well, you're not older. <laughs> it's only me. <laughs> but the, I, the fact that she said, as we get older, stuck with me. As we get older, yeah. And so I end up doing this physical therapy. And the woman that did the physical therapy, she would do all this massage and stuff on my shoulders. And then she put this stuff called, I think it's called KM tape or KT tape. Are you familiar with it? Mm-mm. Athletes use it. The athletes tape, yeah, that's all I know it is. <laughs> yeah. And then so and it has these great shapes. Mm, right. You know? yeah. And so she put this stuff all over my shoulder. And so it got to be, after she did it a couple of times, I started kind of giving her direction about what color tape I wanted it to be <laughs> so that I could make these pictures of myself wearing it. Nice. <laughs> and so that the project was born of that. And then as I thought about it, she's like, there's lots of examples of how this kind of goes. Mm-hmm. Last summer, I made some portraits of myself with my kids, with my girls. You know, as they're getting older, my relationship to them changes roles a bit. Sure. I'm no longer, you know, directly taking care of them. I'm right. just sort of the umbrella, the shelter. And so I just started sort of using that. And I'm not a project-driven guy. I don't really do projects that much. But this is one. And I know uh, I read an interview once with Keith Carter, and I know you guys have been talking about him. And, mm-hmm. and he explained that he often makes photographs along the way, and then he creates these boxes and just throws the prints in a box that he feels like it was a general potential project. Oh. And then after a bit of time, he's able to open the box, and there are these ones that apply to that. So I would never be a guy that would spend the next year doing nothing but as we get older photos. Sure, yeah. Because that's just, just part of what you're doing. It right. is. And then they go into that box. And so I have a lot of those kind of projects that were never done as projects, mm-hmm. but they add up to one sure. at the same time. Do you pre-plan images, or you get a model and you shoot? Like, How do you design your, your images? Well... Because I photograph with an 8x10 camera, between the bulk of it and the cost of it, it's not spontaneous. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and I, there's a part of me that sort of resents that, that I can't just run around taking pictures. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can. I have those kind of cameras. But it just doesn't work for me. But I don't go so far as to planning super specifics of it. What I do is uh, I'll, I'll plan the day and I'll invite somebody to come over. And I might have some props that have found themselves in my life. For a while, I was doing these things I called objects of beauty. I'm still working on that, and that's another one of those boxes. But, you know, I was cleaning out my mother's garage, and I came across a coffee can with a couple of bird's nest in it. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's really cool. But I would have never gone, you know, down to Paxton Gate and bought a bird's nest. Right. <laughs> I could. It found you, essentially. It, it yeah. needs to be a volunteer. Sure. All the still life stuff needs to be a volunteer. I like that. And so I did a bit of that, and then with things that I would come across, and then I did a few of these portraits where I had asked people to bring their own object. Okay. And I thought, well, there's a way to, to sort of toss it up a bit. And I, I liked it, and I didn't at the same time, because suddenly I realized I actually want a little more control than that. You know, because I think the first person dear friend of mine too but she showed up with this gigantic cactus <laughs> and i was like 
I don't know how to work that into this picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't, I, I like controlled collaboration, I guess. I sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, and like I'll go to Goodwill and I come up with some, I just the other day, I came up with this black garment that I thought was really unusual. It looked kind of like a judge's robe or something. So I brought that home, and for the next two or three times I made photographs, everybody had to wear that. Right. <laughs> and I made several different iterations, and then I finally landed on one that just really spoke to me, worked. Nice. And so often I'll repeat ideas or concepts until I get it to look the way I want. And right. I don't think of the first ones as failures. I just think of them as starting points and refinements. Right. Yeah, part of the process of working it out. Yeah. Sure. And if I could draw, I would draw. That's pictures. the way you sketch, right? <laughs> I can't draw. How about writing? Do you write? A bit. I wish I could write better titles for my work. For years and years, I kept a journal. Okay. You know, after reading the day books and all that, I thought, oh, I need to do that too. Yeah. yeah. And I read someplace once that, that Weston kept those specifically for thinking that one day he might be somebody and that those would be important but no i don't do a lot of writing to go with my photographs sure and i you know the title thing i really admire photographers with good titles and some of my best titles have been done by you know susan duet and hmm. some of my other photographer friends right, right. they have great titles and <laughs> i'll say they help you they help me. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way you do it it is yeah. the reason i asked you about the writing is that i was curious because a lot of the you know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the emotional impact of your images, but I feel like, you know, I've looked at your images more as like this visual poetry. To me, that's what, that's really what it is in a nutshell. And that encapsulates all the work you do, you know, every style that you, you dabble in. I've always thought of it as like visual poetry. Nice. I think there's a narrative. I hope there's a narrative. I want the narrative there. And I want the narrative to be open. Mm. And I really have found like the diptych is as old as the hills i'm not you know but for me that's something new sure i've been pairing up some of my older pictures with some of my newer pictures and the thing i dig is that there is a narrative created there for me and likely for anyone else right but i totally know it's not going to be the same for everyone and that's the part i dig everybody's going to dream up their own idea for what's well, going on right and that's interesting too because you're looking at your work that wasn't pre-planned to be a diptych yeah, I haven't shot to that yet. Right. So that so you're what happens is you have this change in in context of of the images. Those single images had one thing going on, and then when you put them together, it changes. It could be similar, but they definitely have to interact with each other in some way, which creates this conversation between the images. That's the hope, right? You know, and I think, and if I was to shoot to a diptych, I don't know what I would do. I would probably do something sort of cliche. <laughs> um, well maybe you shouldn't which i don't think i will <laughs> yeah. i think it, i think it's working better for me to to take some of these new ones mm -hmm. and pair them up with some of the old ones sure yeah. it's just a way to breathe more life into into my work right so when you're matching stuff together are you looking at based solely off of composition sometimes it's shape and often it's mood hmm. oh mood okay. mood you know it's like if it's kind of a melancholy portrait, then I'm looking for a kind of a quiet beachscape, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Sure. Um, and sometimes it's just sort of a loose shape of the two items. And sometimes, honestly, I think I amuse myself by putting two that are almost sort of incongruous and just see what people can come up with. Sure, right. You know, just yeah, yeah. 
as a test. <laughs> Not a test, but like an exercise. Exercise, yeah. One of the things, like, what I like doing with that kind of stuff is, since I'm blind, right, I wear glasses. Right. Often I'll just take them off, and I'll see how the um, shapes pull out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's totally a great way to, to look at diptychs. <laughs> because then I see how the composition works together more in an abstract way. Nice. Right? <laughs> I am almost tempted to like get some foggy glasses. That is brilliant. <laughs> Just brilliant. That is a brilliant idea. Yeah. I like doing it that way because if, if it's really about composition then. It's not about, right. you know, I'm just looking at the shape and and the right. and the tones uh, of the image, right? Nice. I used to look at pictures upside down for that reason. Oh, yeah, there but you go. But that's a little briefer. I mean, your brain figures that out pretty fast. Right. Yeah, it puts it all together. It kind of does. But for a moment, you get a you get a sense of the shape versus the content which is weird when you think about our optics that we it's see things upside down, upside down. <laughs> you're just trying to trick yourself into seeing it the right way it's like a double <laughs> it's like a double agent right. <laughs> that's funny yeah so take your glasses off right well mine are, my sight is only bad right here oh close up i can see well without my glasses gotcha. so i'd have to have some foggy glasses yeah yeah my mother's eyesight's not well, and I, I often think she describes what she sees, and I think there's something fascinating about that. Because, what, you know, I don't know what that would be like. Right, yeah. And how could that, you know, there's probably one of these as we get older photos that's going to revolve around what that might look like. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. You know, and I think as I've chugged along, the other thing that's become important is to find ways to make work easily in the sense of, close to home, people I know. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be locked into feeling I have to go someplace far away or have some exotic sort of props. It just needs to be close to home and sure. easy to make. Yeah. Because there's a thousand reasons not to make your work. <laughs> and so, you don't need any more. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's just one of the failing points of art making. It's just, it's real easy to find some reason not to do it because it's challenging. Right. Yeah. It's a challenge we welcome and I enjoy, but it's still work mm-hmm. to sort of get out there and do it. Sure. And I think we're all prone to find reasons why today's not the day. <laughs> and so if a trip or something gets in the middle of it then there you are right yeah that's so true well, actually that kind of is a good segue into let's talking about besides being a photographer making images you spend a lot of time teaching number one teaching workshops on how to make images how does that interplay with your personal making of art is the teaching just playful for you I'm super lucky in that it comes surprisingly naturally for me. Hmm. I don't know, years ago, somebody suggested I do it, teach a workshop, and I did, and I loved it. And so I'm able to come to it without, I don't feel stressed, I don't feel nervous. I just find that I enjoy meeting like-minded people who are trying to make their work. Because I'm teaching process, it's real easy for me to arrange for them all to have a successful day. <laughs> you know sure. and yeah. so i can help them and i can coach them and i've got the materials and i can watch them have that feeling of making something with their hands that's really yeah. beautiful and they get to take it home and you know even if they don't ever do it again right if they like go do, home happy though <laughs> they go home happy and they've got this i know they've got this thing they made that forever will stand i really like all that part and it's been a great way for me to connect 
with a lot of other like-minded photographers. Sure. And I get a certain satisfaction of um, watching them afterwards. Uh, there's a woman in town that I taught to make tintype portraits. Her name is Maxine. Mm-hmm. And she's just busy making great portraits all the time. Right. And I love watching her do that. And I feel, I mean, she's doing it. I don't have any ownership there. But there's a little side of me that feels really good about having shown her how to do that. Sure. Yeah. Taught her how to do that. Yeah. And she's still doing it. <laughs> and she's doing it. And, yeah. you know, and, and you know, it's, it, for a lot of people, it's just an, an exercise, something to find out what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, an exploration. Yeah. Sure. How did Lyceum start? Lyceum started, I mean, I got the name from a novel I read called The Cabinet of Curiosities. Hmm. And Lyceums were kind of back in the day of the Cabinet of Curiosities. The people who collected all that stuff would get together and, and uh, as a group and talk about what they had found and what they were doing. And they called that Lyceum, uh, hmm. a Lyceum or something. Sure. So it started out as just a dinner party. But it's grown, in the last year it's kind of grown into something that I find important to me, which is I started a critique group that's called the Lyceum Salon. And when I think back about starting and I think about, you know, back in the day, I'm not that old, but back in the day, (laughs) young photographers could look up master photographers and knock on their door and go visit and and learn about their work. And they didn't, it wasn't like a workshop and they didn't teach them anything, but they got to realize that everybody was just, as regular person as they were mm-hmm. and they could look at their work. And so the idea of this salon was to create this environment where people could gather together and there would be talented sort of experienced photographers there. And there would be sort of mid career people there. And then there would be people who are just getting started and it would be this real level playing field where everybody could bring their work and they would learn both how to talk about their work, how to hear people talk about their work sure. and how to talk about other people's work. And I have a, a small story about that. A couple of years ago, Emmett Gowan came to town to give a lecture at the art museum when in conjunction with his show. And because of my involvement with the photo council, I was lucky enough to get invited out to dinner with him. He was somebody I'd admired, you know, in art school and I just thought the world of him. And now I'm, he's sitting next to me at this table <laughs> And uh, we're having dinner, and at one point he looked at me and, and earnestly said, tell me about your photography. And I realized I didn't have, I didn't have the two-sentence answer for that. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Um, and I, it really, I was like, you know, I did what I could, and I just sort of talked about process and what I like to take pictures of and all that kind right, of thing. Right. But I realized that even I was not really versed in talking about my work. And here was this prime example of when I would have liked to have been able to right. do it better. Right. <laughs> and he was super generous. It was fine. But so now with this um, salon meetings, it's like once a month people come and I'm hoping we all learn how to talk about work. Yeah. Well, it's important. And it's, you know, it's free and accessible and it's good. We can start to articulate your own thoughts about why you're doing what you're doing. You know, a lot of it, I've found that you don't really understand it till later anyway so it's nice to go back and and visit the work and then figure out okay what does this mean to me i have a hard time coming up with a concept uh an artist statement before the work's made that's what i'm trying to say oh sure some some people come up with a statement and shoot the pictures to it Mm -hmm. yeah they do but that's just not something i've ever been able to do no me neither i find that as i arrange 
speakers for the brown bags lectures that we do at the art museum I ask a lot of emerging and young photographers to give talks mm-hmm. who maybe haven't done it. Right. And I always tell them the same thing, which is it's really important to learn to talk about your work and you'll learn something about your own work talking about it. It's sure. a good thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, try to give her the fear of the speaking part and realize this is going to be a good growth thing for your work. Yeah. Oh, and for you, sure. I feel like that even, even after you've been experienced and you've done a lot of talks, you still tend to evolve in your thought process when you are reflecting on the work. In fact, the last year when I gave my artist talk, it was a completely different format for me, and you were there. Part of that was because I was revisiting the work and going, this is not really about what I think it's about. In <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I had to really look at it, and, and it's the hindsight thing. Like, oh, I think all the work's about this. And then there's like anecdotal things that I just think maybe I just wasn't thinking about that I realized later, oh, this is, you know, conceptually i might have subconsciously been pushing it away or whatever but i feel like being able to talk about it over and over you've come up with a a language about your own images and and what you do and that language is ever evolving sure i think it's really the best case scenario is when we can sort of get out of the way as we're making our work and let some of that stuff come through sure in a way and maybe you know we're not talking about it initially because we're not actually aware but if it's there and you do through time start to see that thread or understand what you are letting through, then that's beautiful. That's good. Yeah. So the, the moral is if you're face to face with your photo hero, you should have figured out what you're going to say, right? Have that too long. <laughs> have, a, have a two sentence answer that sums up your work. Yeah, we all got to work on that. It's yeah, good just, advice. <laughs> don't, don't try to reach for your phone and show it to him. Right. Um, let me show you. <laughs> Which is ironic, because I probably could have talked about his work more easily than my own at that moment, because I was super familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like that. that's, I mean, part of what I do in publishing and curating is, like, I can talk about other people's work way better than I can talk about my own. You know, that's just something that, it comes more natural to me. And, and And I allow myself to get excited about other people's work way more so than my own work. I don't allow myself to get excited about it, you know, when I'm speaking about it. For me, one of the most exciting things is to randomly come across one of my pictures somewhere <laughs> in somebody's house, or I've seen a few out in public, once at the museum, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. That's when I go, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's that's not satisfying. Easy. Yeah, yeah. it's very satisfying. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsor, Bourbon. So Ray took a short break to pour us another glass, and he decided to turn the tables on me for the last few minutes of the chat, proving again how gracious he is. All right. We haven't either. We kind of did the We took a little break, and Ray poured me some bourbon, so that's good. I'm feeling good now. You know, earlier you were talking about some of the things that are similar in us, and I'm curious to know... Why the diffusion tapes? Why you're doing these interviews? The interviews? I think it's really an extension of what I've been doing with the publishing. With Diffusion Annual, being a print mag, I'm still just in love with that process. And a lot of that is because I continue to evolve it, you know, so I'm not doing the same thing all the time. You know, every issue looks different. And conceptually, it's different, and the content's different. 
it's still branded to 112. But sure. one of the things that I, I've done, especially in like our last issue, is we I beefed up the size of it and included so many images, as many large, largely printed images that I could get in there that fit our theme and that was quality. So that was, it turned out to be so beautiful, but there's no writing in it really. And most of my previous issues had writing. So I, I moved the writing pieces to our blog. People are seeming to be reading that more than they're reading diffusion anyway so you know mostly they're coming for the images picture magazine yeah so and also it's a financial um, reason too i can get more images in there and less text and the text doesn't cost me anything on my website so you know i just feel like why waste the space in the in the magazine when i can put more images in and really focus on the writing pieces online but that came with the idea that i wasn't really enjoying my interviews and stuff I feel like the interviews are too, on paper, the interviews are too shallow. You know, really what, what it comes down to is I like, I like the conversations that I have with photographers and other people that are in our fields. You know, when I go to like a festival or to an event or just an opening, the conversations I'm having are what makes those things so exciting for me, coupled with awesome imagery. So I have the two things, the community of people and the work. And those two things are the most important things to me. So the podcast thing seems like a natural step to have a more intimate conversation with people and not to be so formulaic and not to be like a Q&A, more of a conversation. That's what I enjoy in my life, and I'm already promoting people, and I'm already doing this. I already have an audience. Well, this seems like a, a, just a natural step for me to move on to more projects. I'm a project guy. I like new things. I like to challenge myself. I didn't know anything about podcasting a year ago. You know, I didn't have any equipment a year ago. I just started gathering what I needed and doing a lot of research. And just like with publishing, there's a lot of things that I didn't really know were going to be something I had to deal with on the back end of things, you know, like all the nuances of getting the podcast published and, you know, spreading the word and, you know, how do I host it? All these little variables. It's just the same thing as when I started publishing. I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to make a magazine. How do I get distribution? All that kind of stuff was the same problem. So I find that to be super challenging and that's what I, that's what I love. That's what I thrive on is that challenge of like trying something I've never done before, have really no experience at, and can I can I be a successful, you know? And, and part of how I do that is I trick myself. Well, it's it's a conscious trick, but I say I'm doing something publicly, <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to follow through because I, all this self pressure is like, okay, well I'm going to make a podcast, and I start telling people about it, and then I actually you know as soon as I start recording interviews, I'm like, well I've already told a bunch of people I'm doing this. Before even recorded one interview, you know, <laughs> right, and even asked some more people to come do it, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So it was like, okay, I have to do it now, you know, at least to some extent, it has to be something. So, and that's really what I did with Diffusion. The same thing. We're going to make a book, or we're going to make a magazine. I want it to turn into a book eventually, but let's just start it at magazine format. And I decided I'm going to do it, and I did it. And you know, nice. with me running it all myself and not having a whole lot of other people involved, I don't have a schedule. And with the podcast, with Diffusion, I've never had schedules, so really I can just do it when I want to do it. And that's sort of how I like being able to do my artwork. It's the same idea. Like, I just want to be able to do it as I feel inspired to do it. The expectation's there that I will eventually do something, but it may not be any certain time frame, right? No deadlines. <laughs> I like not having deadlines. And I do, I do self-imposed deadlines for certain things, and that's how, obviously, everything gets done eventually. But it's all self-imposed. 
Well, sure, but I think that from a community standpoint, this is like the same thing as maybe traveling out and meeting some photographer, mm-hmm. except for we get to do it thanks to you without having to leave the house. Right. And it's those conversations that I think you're right. The written interviews tend to be, because they're written, they're more prescribed. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I can tell you about my own experience right here today. I can't even remember what I've said up till now. Right. And there's a beauty of that. Right. Because that means it was not very, either it was not interesting or <laughs> it was not super prescribed and, and sort of nailed down. Right, right. And I think that that's, uh, and the ones I listened to that you've done so far, that was one of the things I enjoyed. I enjoyed the fact that the first one you did was somebody I didn't know and mm. I didn't know anything about. Sure. And I know Lori Verbin, I know her work, and I've spent some time with her. So that mm-hmm. was, there was some familiarity there but things I didn't know. So that's really fun. Yeah. And that was part of my, my goal too, was I am interviewing a few people that I don't know very well, but most of the people I know in some way, um, some more than others, obviously, but I want the conversation to be real as well, you know? So I'm picking people that, that I know and that I, that I have a good rapport with. So I think that's important for for the conversation to actually go somewhere <laughs> and a little history. I mean, yeah, it's nice to have history too. Yeah. Cause you've, you know, we all been around right. for a while now. Well, and I think maybe it's just easier for me as a host. I don't have to do so much research, sure. you know, and I do have some upcoming people that, that I have to do more research on, but I'm doing my best to like actually meet up with people before I talk to them. If I haven't really spent any time with them, I like to, let's go out to coffee or go out to a meal and have a discussion. And that way I can kind of gauge our rapport and, and kind of, you know, make that a little bit easier for both of us. Nice. Is that your similar feelings about being a reviewer around these reviews? Is that something that you do selfishly just to look at all this great work or is it? Uh, I think it's, it's kind of threefold with the reviews because I enjoy the community that's involved with the festival scene. And I think that you get a lot of camaraderie, with both sides of the table in those events. When I first started, I didn't feel like I had the qualifications to do review because I didn't think that, you know, number one, I didn't really think I had much to offer people as actual opportunity. Sure. It was more, I felt like I was bringing advice, you know, or I was bringing perspective. But I think that, you know, being an independent publisher definitely opened that door for me to start that dialogue. But it, I've never felt a lot of pressure like, hey, you know, are you going to publish my work or anything like that? It, it's always been more of a conversation about photography. And so that's what I love is sure. photography. And so having conversations about photography, it is similar to this, what you're saying. Those reviews are similar, but we're, it's, you know, it's a very short amount of time, number one. But two, I'm, I'm trying to give them a, as big of a perspective as I can in a very short amount of time. And it's specifically about a certain body of work. So, you know, the conversations are more like speed dating. And there's not, you know, like if I have references to photographers, often I follow up with emails. It's just so hard to like, you know, really have those conversations. When the photographers sit down, they have certain goals that they need to accomplish in that amount of time as well. And fear, all those things. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. And they're anxious. And and so am I, you know, people have to realize that the reviewers are all, not everybody's like big smooth talkers and do this stuff all the time. You know what I mean? Like some, some people do, some people do it on a daily and they're very, used to it and it's what they're you know it doesn't make them nervous or anything like that but i do it once a year you know (laughs) so for me it's like that's my one opportunity to have these conversations but i do get nervous like i want to give people the information they need and 
I am able to give up, you know, small opportunities, which I just call marketing opportunities for them. Cause that's really what I feel like diffusion is. It's just marketing sure. opportunities, you know, getting an image in diffusion doesn't mean anything other than you have this opportunity to get your work seen by more people. So I just look at it as marketing, you know? Well, and I think more and more of those sorts of venues are what are going to be, how we're going to get our work seen. Sure. Yeah. I think the gallery things are going to be fewer. Right. And, you know, there's lots of small magazines and places to be seen. And I think they count. I think it matters. I think it's good. Those are good opportunities. They are. They are. And and for me, you know, we've talked about this before, is that this, and this is something you do in your work, is I like having an object. You know, we're making an object. So having a, a it's not just a magazine for me anymore. It's turned into this book that, you know, I, I want the reproductions to be, you know, as spot on as I can get them, you know conscious of budget but I, I like having these objects because those things live on you know much longer seeing my diffusions even from the first one i see it on my shelf in the house i'm so proud of seeing that little magazine that we did it's not lost to the ether of the internet you know <laughs> yeah i'm curious what you think about all the social media and how that affects us as art makers is that a good thing it goes both ways. I feel like a lot of people are selling artwork they, they would have never sold because of the internet. Sure. And I, so I feel like the access to like getting your work out there, if there's venues that are actually selling work and actually distributing it out to the world, or if you have a website and you're able to sell stuff off your website like you do, you know, then you know, there's an opportunity that didn't exist you know, at, all. at all. Because then number one, you're not splitting profits with somebody, but you know, a, a gallery is great, but it's in one place and there's only so many people that get to see that work in that place, you know, so it's very regional based and you don't get the worldwide access we got, but just the word social media, I just, that makes me cringe a little bit because <laughs> yeah. there's the other part of that. It's like, you know, uh, I think Lori said it in her interview, which I thought was great. She's like, um, it, if you don't like Facebook, then you're doing it wrong. Well, if you said if Facebook's not working, you're doing. Oh, it. For, yeah, right. So I think that's that's that was a great quote. I sure. thought because if you're using it to get your your work out there, not necessarily your political beliefs or your woes of your family and all that stuff. I mean, that's a whole different social media, as far as I'm concerned. But if you're using it as a tool to get your artwork seen, brilliant because that's a great way to do it. If you look at any of my websites that I've ran or any sales that we've done, like the A for A print sale. Most of our sales are generated from Facebook links or Instagram links, you sure. know, not necessarily word of mouth or definitely not like through email lists. It's just like social media is how those things have sold. And I feel like and so it's great for that exposure and, and sales and in the community, of course, you know, because you can't buy that advertising. No, no. <laughs> you know, right. But I think there's good to that. Yeah. It's definitely a double edged sword. I think so. I have students and colleagues who will post on social media and if they don't get the kind of response they think they should they get discouraged mm -hmm. yeah about something that might be a fine piece of work for them in some ways right so i think that's an interesting sort of thing that we don't think about yeah i mean i think you and i are both kind of old school if if you can't see the print then you really it's hard for you to get excited about it you know if you can't really see how it looks in real life and, I mean, I say that to people, and it's not very well received. But <laughs> you know, it's like if if you haven't got a print and you haven't worked on it, I don't I don't care much about it. Right. <laughs> Sadly, I mean, like I said, maybe that's an old school way of thinking. But I feel like if you're into the beauty of objects, and if you're into photography because of the object or the photograph itself as an as an object, 
I mean, going back to the review thing, that's one of the reasons I love doing those reviews because now I get to see the work in person and I know how good it is. And then I feel really confident when I publish it, you know, that this is good work. It always has to be an object in the reviews. They don't ever get to bring an iPad or... Um, see what people do if there's like a multimedia aspect to it, like videos. But typically, yeah, they need... There's a lot of digital prints. So, so But yeah, most everything is print, print nice. medium. So there is object mostly... I don't like looking at people's iPad at their work at a photo review. I feel like they're wasting their money. Oh, they're not ready. Yeah, I just don't feel like that's... I mean, some things, they need to show an installation shot of something, sure. You know, a video, sure. But, like, I don't want to see your work on an iPad. I want to see what it looks like. If you want someone to buy this, you need to show me what it's going to look like when they buy it, even if it's a small version of it, right? Sure. I feel like that's important to me, and I think it's important to a lot of the reviewers that are there because they're museum curators and stuff like that. They need to know that... And then they, if they want to acquire something or give, even give these people advice, they need to see what it looks like, you know? Sure. So I think that's important. That's why I get so excited about those reviews. And these artists have spent so much money to be at these places. So I feel like that's a whole other problem. It's Question, like, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's expensive to be an artist to, to participate in this kind of stuff. Oh, more than ever, I think. Yeah, and, and that's a bigger issue with a lot of things, with our gallery scene and stuff like that. But but for me, on a personal level, I love being able to see the prints and I get access to people from all over the world, you know, all over the nation or region, depending on where it's at. And I get to see these prints in person. So a lot of that stuff I publish because I've seen the prints, you know. And then we do diffusion shows. So I want to be able to know that when it goes to the gallery, that it's going to look good on the wall. I've seen mistakes where I've curated a show and then I go to the show. I'm like, oh, that looks nothing like it should look. Not what I thought. Yeah, so being able to see the work in real life is really important to me. Me too. (laughs) I mean, I like going to the photo lucid because it's here. To the I don't do the review, but I go to the walk, the portfolio walk. Yeah, you can see all the work. It's like the bleeding edge of fine art photography, right there. I don't know. I think I tell my students make prints. You know, make something with this. Sure. I think it's important. That sounds like a good place for us to stop. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> make prints. Make prints. Mm-hmm. Right. Make prints. Do your work. Make prints. Like I said, it's real easy not to, but I think this is important to you. Do your work. Well, thanks, Ray. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Well, there we go. Thanks for listening in on my conversation with Ray from several months back. This tape is proof of some of the stuff we talked about, specifically how I don't adhere to solid timelines. It's taken me a while to find the time to finish editing this tape and the ones that follow it. Sometimes life throws you curveballs and you just have to refocus that energy. That being said, I've recorded a whole season of interviews, so thanks for your patience. I'll get them all released in, well, blue time. If you're not on Ray's email list, you should do so. He has an amazing birthday sale that's coming up early this fall. It's a great opportunity to collect some of his original work. Click the link in our show notes for that and anything else that we may have talked about. And again, thank you for listening to the Diffusion Tapes. In my next tape, I enjoyed learning more about Heather Evans-Smith while she was visiting Portland earlier this year. A lot of times I would go home on my lunch break and put on a vintage dress, take a photo and edit it and be back to work mm-hmm. in time to finish my work up. Sometimes I'd be a few minutes late and my friend would look at me and go, you were taking a picture again, weren't you? <laughs> I was like, yes, I was.